Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Shantideva and the Path of Love, Part 1, by Lama Kathy Wesley. When the world seems hopelessly mired in confusion, delusion, and anger, we might feel powerless to act to affect change in our lives and the world. However, the teachings of the Buddha say that there is one force stronger than the power of evil in the world, the power of love. Sharing quotations from an 8th century text written by the Indian Buddhist saint Shantideva, Lama Kathy opens the topic of how love can conquer evil. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Tixam Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, uh, this is uh, Kathy Wesley saying uh, good afternoon. Thanks very much for joining today. Uh, today, um, uh, we have just finished, this week, we have just finished the um, talks on uh, quiet sitting meditation as a foundational practice. And so what we did in the um, talks about meditation was that we talked about how meditation uh, is helps us to learn mindfulness and alertness and how we can use mindfulness and alertness to uh, keep us on the straight and narrow in terms of our Dharma path. Um, we can learn from... Um, yeah, from from the from meditation, we can learn all kinds of things. And so it's uh, my hope that uh, through doing the meditation practice, you've begun to notice more of your personal patterns and uh, and that um, as you are um, learning your personal patterns, that you're able to uh, work with them better and hopefully add some new things into your uh, into your daily practice, such as the practice of love and compassion. So then, so I decided that I would take my next topic as my next topic. I would take the practice of bodhicitta, and so that's the um, that's the that's what I'm going to be talking about now. Uh, so the, uh, if you'll notice the topic um, uh, that, that I will place on this is going to be uh, Shanti Deva and the path of love, uh, because I think that love is something we need to understand better right now, uh, because the uh, so many people have suffered so much as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, and so many people are um, experiencing um, fear and uh, sadness and uh, a feeling of hopelessness. And so what I'm hoping is that with these uh, talks that we're trying to find ways to help us cope in the midst of all of what's going on. So um, the reason that I wanted to talk about love in general and uh, the, the Bodhisattva's love or Bodhicitta in particular is uh, because of something that His Holiness Karmapa said in one of his talks uh, in 2015. Uh, those of you who are familiar with His Holiness, the 17th Jawan Karmapa know that he is, um, he is frequently traveling to different parts of the world and teaching about Buddhism. And uh, although he is in retreat right now, you can still uh, view his uh, Dharma talks and teachings 
online on his own channel here on YouTube and then his uh, own pages on uh, Facebook. Uh, but the teaching that I want to kind of zero in on is a teaching that he gave in 2015 in Kingston, New York, um, when he was getting ready to give the Buddhist vow of refuge, the ceremony of the Buddhist vow of refuge. And so um, as he was getting ready, he talked about spirituality and how important spirituality is for us as human beings in our everyday life. I think the situation, the current situation we're finding ourselves in right now with the pandemic is uh, part of the reason it's so distressing is because of the social isolation. We can't be with the people we are usually with. We have to uh, keep a safe distance from them. We sometimes have to wear masks and it can make us feel like we're really separated from so many people. And so the, the, uh, the cues that we usually get that tell us that someone cares for us those of uh, the hugs and the handshakes and the claps on the back and all of those things that people do to each other to reassure themselves that we are together and we're working through this, those social cues are gone for many of us right now. And because they're gone for many of us, we feel uh, um, an emptiness and, and not in a good way in our hearts. And what we're seeing also is that in society at large, society at large right now is suffering so much because of the economic downturn that came about as a result of the pandemic and all of the social isolation, economic downturn, people don't have money, and people are becoming very frustrated. And their frustrations are bubbling over, and they're actually starting to disagree with one another and sometimes even have confrontations with one another. And this uh, confrontational feeling is, is very frightening for many. And we have to try to figure out what we can do because we can't go out in the middle of, uh, of an angry group of people, number one, it's not safe. And number two, it's not safe from a, a, a virus point of view, because when people are yelling and shouting and doing and talking a lot, that's one of the ways that the virus spreads is by uh, speaking and putting droplets into the air. So not only is being in a large crowd right now kind of unsafe from a health point of view, it's also kind of unsafe from a heart point of view, our, our own human heart. Because when we think of other people as being separate from ourselves and different from us, what frequently happens is that we take a superior view to those people. In other words, we don't just think that we're different than others. We actually sort of think we're a little better and that maybe we have the right view. Maybe we have the right information. Maybe we are smarter than they are. And maybe we need to tell them the right way to live their lives. And so what we're seeing in society as a whole right now is a lot of this confrontation, pushing and pulling. Some people say, oh, we shouldn't be in quarantine. Some people say we should be in quarantine. Some people say we should wear masks. Some people say we shouldn't wear masks. And there's a lot of this pushing and pulling and it's making a lot of people feel incredibly stressed. And, um, and because of this stress, people are, uh, are really angry. They're angry online. They're angry in the street. Uh, and sometimes they're even angry in church. 
So uh, because people find that they disagree and this superior notion that they're superior to the people they disagree with is really harmful. Now, you may ask, what does that have to do with Shantideva and the path of love? Well, in 2015, His Holiness Karmapa spoke about spiritual life as being one of the ways that we bring meaning to our, our life, to bring meaning to our place in the world and bring meaning to our being. And so as a result, we turn to our spiritual life to help us cope. Because let's face it, having been taken forcefully out of our lives, the lives that we thought we were so happy in, that we're being taken forcefully by the pandemic out of our everyday lives. And those of you who are familiar with um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's uh, theory of the five stages of grief, remember those? When, when a terrible loss occurs in our life, sometimes we're not able to cope with that loss right away. And we have to go through five different stages in order to begin to five psychological stages in order to be able to integrate this loss or this change. And sometimes it's uh, publicized or written about as the five stages of grief. Uh, usually they're, uh, they're in a slightly different order, but uh, for today, I'm going to say the first stage of grief is denial and at which we are so much in shock that we don't know what to do. And we're sort of frozen in place by our fear and not knowing what to do. So it's almost as though we, we feel better denying that some loss has occurred or some change has occurred. It's better to pretend that the change didn't happen. Secondly, there's depression. People who feel uh, so bereft and so sad because they lost the life that they thought they were going to have, they feel uh, depression and sadness. And then perhaps another stage is the, the stage of anger, when we realize that we lost the life that we felt we deserved, and then we become angry, sometimes at other people, sometimes at ourselves, sometimes at the entire world, because we feel so much the loss that we have experienced, then we're so angry about it. Some people say they're angry at God when a loved one dies or when a situation changes. Some people say they're angry at the world or they're angry at karma or whatever, but there's some kind of anger. And eventually that anger can be turned toward other people. And this is where we, uh, we encounter the situation we're in right now. And then the, the fourth of the five stages of grief, as they were described by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, is bargaining, where we, we say, well, maybe I'm ready to accept this new change. Maybe I'm ready to accept my loss, but maybe I'm not. Maybe if I, maybe if I do this or if I do that, I can hold on to my denial a little longer. And so they're in people who are in this stage kind of bargain saying, well, if I do this, will it be all right? Will I do this? If, if, if I do this, will I be all right? And so on. And then finally, the fifth stage is acceptance. In the stage of acceptance, we have in some way begun to integrate the loss and make the changes internally that we need to make to cope with the loss in a full way and allow it to become part of us. And so the what we're experiencing right now is so much political argument and the arguments are even floating out into the streets and so on. All that we're experiencing right now it, of these disagreements and so forth is coming from one thing and that is 
fear. And fear is what is propelling us into the current situation of sadness and so on. I'm going to uh, directly read to you a couple of quotations from the Karmapa as to what he spoke of as being the dangers that face human, humankind and all beings on the earth. Uh, His Holiness Karmapa, when he was giving the vow of refuge, which is the uh, initiatory Buddhist vow, where we, we vow to take the Buddha as our teacher, his teaching, the Dharma as our path, and the, his community, the Sangha or community or congregation as our community. So we vow that the Buddha is our teacher, the Dharma is our path, and the Sangha is our community. And we call these the three jewels of refuge. And, and so the Karmapa said, well, why is it that we uh, see these three jewels as being a refuge? It's because the Buddha became spiritually enlightened and was liberated from this world of suffering. And so the teaching that he gives is our path to do the same, because the Buddha denied being a god. In fact, he said he was a human being, but he was an awakened human being, and that if we practice the same way he did, we also could become Buddhas. And then thirdly, we take refuge in the Sangha or the community because they help us interpret the teachings and make them useful for ourselves and our everyday life. So... The Buddha is our uh, teacher and also our goal. The Dharma is his path and our path. And then uh, the Sangha is our, our, our guides and protectors. And, um, and so what Karmapa said is that when we take these three sources of refuge to protect us, he said they protect us because from the time we take that refuge vow until the moment we ourselves reach enlightenment, we need the maximum amount of support and help in our spiritual path. And knowing that the Buddha is watching out for us, his path will keep us steady and his community will surround us with love and caring. This helps us to undertake the hardships of learning how to let go of that selfishness that is at the source of so much of our our pain and suffering. Those of you who remember the teaching on the Four Noble Truths that that were taught by the Buddha, he said suffering's part of life, it has a cause, and that the cause of suffering is clinging and fixation, particularly self-clinging and self-fixation, and that we can let go of that clinging and then achieve a state of peace through his path of virtue and meditation. So the the Karmapa said that uh, fear can come from all sorts of sources. When we can be afraid, he said, of a leaping tiger in the forest or um, a, a threatening person on the street. But we also could face fear because of societal changes or even climate change. He said, we need to go beyond our fear and remember that there are so many kinds of fear and so many kinds of difficulty that human beings can endure. Then the the Karmapa also said that there was a subtle and invisible danger to us that is unlike the leaping tiger, unlike climate change, and so on. He said um, the fear of obvious dangers such as war, famine, disease, and so forth, those dangers we can easily identify, the Karmapa said. However, what is threatening us more right now is our lack of love. 
Our lack of love is what the Karmapa said is the greatest danger to all beings on the earth. He said, lack of love leaves too many people and too many animals without protection or refuge. Think about that. Lack of love leaves too many people and too many animals without protection or refuge. Their terrible suffering could be prevented, the Karmapa said, if we had enough love. Since this deficit of love is within us, it's not a deficit of love coming to us from others. It's a deficit of our love toward others. This deficit of love is within us. We have the power to recognize that deficit and to change that deficit. And change we must, Karmapa said, as insufficient love poses not only the danger of eventual disaster for others, but disaster for ourselves as well. When we lose our love for ourselves and when we lose our love for others, we have the potential to harm others and we have the potential to harm ourselves. And this is why it's so important right now for all of us to take the practice of the meditation and the practice of love as a practice we will do. You can see in all of the great faith traditions of the world, practices based on the training in love and compassion. I'm the most familiar with the practices of the Buddhist tradition, specifically the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and their training on love and compassion, which dates all the way back to Buddhist India and beyond. And so, our uh, the reason that we need to practice love is that without love for others, we could actually see ourselves as superior to them. We could criticize them. We could criticize those others and say, oh, they're not like us. They're different. And of course, what we're really saying is we're better. We can say, oh, I'm not like those people. So we criticize them. Then we ostracize them. We'll say, uh, we'll say, well, I don't want to be around you. Go away. And then we marginalize them where we say, I don't even want to look at you. So I push you to the very edge of my uh, caring. And then finally, we demonize them. We say those people are evil. And you know, that's when really bad things can start to happen. That's when wars can happen. That's when uh, dangerous attacks can happen, is when we criticize and ostracize and marginalize and demonize uh, others and make them into our enemies. So this is why, because this is um, unfortunately in the case of our humanity, this is a problem that human beings can fall into. We can fall into fear of others and feeling superior, then we can harm others. We can harm them with our words, we can harm them with our actions, and we can harm them with our thoughts. When we think ill of others and train ourselves in feeling superior to others, we say negative things about others and criticize them thinking everyone agrees. 
And then we will say negative things to others and then they'll laugh or then they will start saying negative things. So one person's lack of love, one person, one single person's lack of love for others or lack of love for themselves can give birth to so much suffering. So the Karmapa said that we have to we have to change that. We have to see this deficit in love in ourselves and begin to change it. Now, those of you who uh, attended the classes on um, uh, on meditation that I gave, making friends with your meditation, you can find that on Facebook Live as well as on the YouTube channel. the The practices that we learned in um, making friends with our meditation help us to quiet down the racing thoughts that can lead to anger, the racing thoughts that can well up from fear and so forth. And as we tame those, we'll see that there might be moments, even just short moments of a few seconds of peace in our hearts and minds as we practice meditation. But we can take advantage of those moments of peace and quiet in our meditation, first by resting in them and letting them seep into us and letting the, the, uh, the depth of quiet uh, settle within us. And what's valuable about this is that this resting will allow us to notice our thoughts, both while we are meditating and when we are off our meditation seat in our everyday life. So it's my hope that learning about quiet sitting meditation helped you in your everyday life to notice your patterns and to see maybe some of the selfish patterns or maybe the patterns of fear that you have or anger that you have. And the, and the teachings of the Buddha say that love is the cure for anger, impatience, hatred, jealousy. It's the solution to all of these negative mental afflictions. But as the Karmapa said in his uh, comments that day, he said, our usual love and compassion is limited. It's limited to our relatives or our friends. And beyond them, we set a boundary to our caring that allows us to either ignore others or dislike them. The Karmapa said, we need to extend our love and come to see that we are connected to everyone. Um, this, is, um, this is really uh, an important point. We, have, we need to extend our love and come to see that we are connected to everyone. When we think about how living beings harm one another, the Karmapa said, we can see this lack of love clearly. If we look at, and look at ourselves and see lack of love within ourselves, we will fear its dangers and we will go to refuge and train to develop the love and compassion that the Dharma teaches. So um, that's what I wanted to begin with today, um, to restate the Karmapa's wonderful teaching on love and how important love is to our ability to uh, practice meditation and to practice basic human kindness for one another. So um, the, now you may ask, well, isn't it true that, um, that even though we might have some love, how can we extend that love? The, um, the easiest way to extend the love that we have is to practice uh, a meditation called metta, M-E-T-T-A, metta. And metta is um, the Pali word for 
loving kindness. And in uh, meta practice, we sit uh, in our meditation seat after we have done our usual calm abiding meditation, watching the breath or whatever object of meditation we are uh, being observant of. We watch uh, our breath and bring our mind to rest. And after we have done that, before we conclude our meditation, we mentally imagine that we extend love. First, we imagine that we extend love to ourselves as though we were another sentient being standing in front of us. We mentally imagine that we extend our love to ourselves and engulf ourselves with our own love. And then we extend our love farther out and farther out and farther out to include those people who are our family and our, and our close ones, our dear ones. And then we expand even farther out and farther out and farther out to include those we uh, are only merely acquainted with and then to extend it out and extend it out and extend it out until finally we've included all of the people, even those that we have felt critical of and felt superior to, even the people we dislike, even people that we or others have branded as evil. We imagine extending our love to all of them. This gradual extension of our love uh, is a practice that has been recommended by His Holiness the Dalai Lama as a way of mentally extending love and compassion for ourselves and others. Uh, starting tomorrow, I will have a small uh, summary of how to do this loving kindness practice. I'll have it posted on the Columbus Karma Takes Some Choling website, and that, that is columbusktc.org. And if you go to the columbusktc.org, then you go to the virtual shrine room, and then you go to the Dharma downloads page, you will find them there. And uh, and you could also just Google uh, Columbus KTC and Dharma downloads, and then you'll get to that page directly. And it will be uh, entitled uh, Meditation on Love and Compassion. So that's a very simple way that we can, uh, by using our imagination, imagine that we are sending love first to ourselves and then to those who are, are close to us and then gradually farther and farther out until we're even including in our love. We're extending that boundary of our love to include all beings. So... Um, um, this will be a start for us in learning how to train in love. But there is even farther that we can go in the Buddhist teaching to train in love. There's even farther we can go. And uh, in order to get there, we have to study a little bit about what the Buddhist definition of love is and what the Buddhist definition of compassion is. The Buddhist definition of love is a wishing for others to be happy. And the Buddhist definition of compassion is wishing for others to be free of suffering. So love is wishing for others to be happy. Compassion is wishing for them to be free of suffering. And so uh, how we train in this is different in different parts of the Buddhist tradition. The sort of introductory level, love and compassion, is this metta practice that we described, which can help so much in expanding our ideas of who we might be able to love. Because right now, our intellect and our preferences and our prejudices are holding us back 
from loving everyone. And we have to see that that lack of love as actually being a danger to ourselves. We might turn ourselves into someone who is cruel and unkind in our hearts. And having a cruel and unkind heart is going to lead us to treat ourselves and others badly. So this training in love and compassion is a good beginning. We can go even farther though. We can go to a practice that uh, is shown uh, to to be the number one easiest path to reducing self-fixation and selfishness. Self-fixation and selfishness are the root of all of our suffering. Clinging to the idea of me or mine is the uh, root cause of all kinds of suffering. It's what allows us to think we can hurt others. It's what allows us to think that we can damage others. It's what allows us to do things that we otherwise might not do. We do it to protect ourselves, to bring ourselves security and happiness, and to bring ourselves the things that we feel we need and deserve. But how could we possibly tame selfishness? How is it possible to tame selfishness? Isn't that something that is like a... a, a, survival skill isn't don't we need selfishness or we would ignore our health or we would ignore our safety uh, or we would ignore our security it's not like that we can undo the damage done by selfish clinging the hatred that it brings the fear that it brings and the suffering that it brings we can we can gradually dissolve the harmful aspects of selfishness. We can slowly dissolve those harmful aspects of selfishness. And uh, by doing so, we can actually have more genuine love and compassion for ourselves and more genuine love and compassion for others because we're no longer only looking at others as people who can do things for us. Usually our the other's value to us is only as servants, or as um, objects, like I have so many friends and I have so many companions and people love me and those kinds of things. We sometimes use other people to help us feel better about ourselves. But what if we just loved them? How would that be if we just loved other people? But how do we dissolve our selfishness without letting people walk all over us? How is it that we can maintain a proper, healthy sense of ourselves? How can we have that proper, healthy sense of ourselves while holding back and maybe dissolving the harmful aspects of ourselves? This was uh, given by the Buddha in his teachings on bodhicitta. Bodhi is B-O-D-H-I, and it means awakening, and citta means mind. So bodhicitta, the mind of awakening. And the Buddha used this term, the mind of awakening, to um, to show it as being a core to the path of dharma. If we want to leave selfishness behind and accomplish goodness in our lives, we need to train in bodhicitta. And we want to have the mind that wants to wake up. And what do we want to wake up from? We want to wake up from the sleep of ignorance. And that ignorance is an ignorance 
of our true nature, which is Buddha nature, which is Buddha potential. When we don't see that we have Buddha potential, we uh, treat ourselves badly. When we don't see that we have Buddha potential, we sometimes harm ourselves. When we don't have, we don't see that we have Buddha potential, we create an identity for ourselves, I or me, and then dress it up with possessions and people and uh, thoughts and experiences that we think somehow make us better. But really, all of those things are uh, only uh, exterior to ourselves. They're not a kind of happiness and love that comes from within us. We take all these external and material things, thinking these material things will make us happy. Now, of course, we need a certain amount of materiality in order to be safe, healthy, and secure. So I'm not talking about giving those things up. I'm talking about the things that we gather with the intention that we aggrandize our self-concept and make ourselves look uh, bigger and better than what we are. So what we're trying to do with bodhicitta is awaken from the sleep of ignorance, the ignorance of our Buddha nature, the ignorance of the Buddha nature of others, because when we are ignorant of the Buddha nature of others, we will merely see them as objects that we can then move around as though we were playing a game. And we don't really see their suffering, except as it impacts us. How many times have you heard yourself say, oh, I hope so-and-so, my friend doesn't call me, I don't like listening to their problems. And it's because we lack a feeling of being open to others and we lack a feeling of being able to work with others and feel with others without it knocking us over. So bodhicitta is attempting to show us the right kind of self-concept. And a bodhicitta shows us this by showing us the example of the bodhisattva. Bodhicitta is the mind of awakening, and the bodhisattva is one who is training in the mind of awakening. So by training in the mind of awakening, we take on a temporary but hopefully helpful identity. It's a new identity that we're trying, that we take on with our uh, in our minds and in our hearts, we say, I am a bodhisattva in training. Bodhisattva in training. You, Those of you who have heard me give lectures on this say that uh, this idea of being a bodhisattva in training is a powerful thing. And, uh, and uh, sometimes I joke around that bodhisattvas in training should probably have a placard that they wear on their back or on their front saying bodhisattva in training, kind of like those signs like student driver. So, um, so in this way, the, the practice of uh, the bodhisattva is a practice of, uh, of trying to, um, how do we want to say this? Trying to train ourselves in love and compassion. The practice of bodhicitta is incredibly important. Uh, and in fact, uh, it's so important that um, that the Buddha and others have spoken about it as being uh, the key to enlightenment. Without practicing an understanding of love and compassion, we can't dissipate the selfishness that harms us. And we can't dissipate 
uh, the selfish mind that gives us all of our suffering. So um, how important is bodhicitta? Well, uh, I think that what is important about bodhicitta it can be found in the works of Shantideva. Um, Shantideva lived in the eighth century of the common era and, uh, and he uh, was a monastic living in a monastic community. And, uh, and he um, wrote a book called, um, actually he didn't write it, he spoke it, uh, The Way of the Bodhisattva or the Bodhicharya Avatara. And in this book, he talks about nothing but bodhicitta as being the central path to Buddhahood. And without the path of bodhicitta, he said there can be no Buddhahood. So that means all the folks who think they can become a Buddha by studying books all by themselves, or people who think they can become a Buddha by just practicing meditation all by themselves, they, he says, the Buddha has said in his teachings, they will not achieve Buddhahood because they need to train in bodhicitta, which is why taking on the secret identity of being a bodhisattva in training is so important. In, uh, in the book, um, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which has been translated in this uh, Shambhala edition as The Way of the Bodhisattva, uh, Shantideva talks about uh, how powerful bodhicitta is. And, um, and um, when we look at uh, his teaching, it gives, us some, it gives us some hope. I'm going to, um, I think, wrap up today by uh, talking about the, um, the power of bodhicitta as, as it has been taught and what uh, Shantideva has to say about it. And I'm hoping these verses give you a bit of hope in the face of all the difficulties we're experiencing right now because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The, um, uh, the very first uh, verse of the uh, guide to the um, Bodhisattva's way of life. And by the way, what I'm doing is I'm reading to you from the uh, translation that is in uh, Pema Chodron's book, No Time to Lose. Um, he says, to, to those who go in bliss, the Dharma they have mastered and to all their heirs, to all who merit veneration, I bow down. According to tradition, I shall now in brief describe the entrance to the Bodhisattva discipline. So Ashantideva starts by saying, um, those who go in bliss, which means the enlightened Buddhas and the Dharma they have taught, and then all of their heirs, meaning the Bodhisattvas, and all who merit veneration, those spiritual beings, I bow down. According to tradition, I shall now in brief describe the entrance to the Bodhisattva discipline. And so then in the next, um, and then the next verse, he says, uh, all that what I have to say has all been said before. I am destitute of learning and skill with words. I therefore have no thought that this might be a benefit to others. I wrote it only to sustain my understanding. So uh, even though he has attained Buddhahood himself, Shantideva, nonetheless, claims humility and says that he's not writing something new, but it's based on the teachings of the Buddha in the past and is writing it for his own benefit. And then he goes on to say, uh, my faith by writing this book or by speaking this will thus be strengthened for a little while that I might grow accustomed to this virtuous way. 
but others who now chance upon my words may profit also equal to myself in fortune. And so he's hoping that it helps others what he's written. And then he says, so hard to find such ease and wealth whereby to render meaningful this human birth. If now I fail to turn it to my profit, how could such a chance be mine again? So he's saying that being human is a unique situation. And if we look at the number of human beings versus the number of animals in the world, and uh, it's it's quite just a few. And animals possess some intellect, but they they are not capable of us of understanding the teachings of this particular Buddha. And therefore, being human is said to be a greater birth even than the uh, worldly gods. But now, it, this is what I want to talk about. Uh, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5 of Shantideva. He's saying, um, how rare is love? How rare is it? Verse five, as when a flash of lightning rends the night and in its glare shows all the dark black clouds had hid. Likewise, rarely through the Buddha's power, virtuous thoughts rise brief and transient in the world. So that's a, a pretty powerful statement. It might help us right now, because some people feel right now that we're living kind of in an evil world or a world that's very filled with darkness. And uh, the and Shantideva is sort of agreeing. He says, as when a flash of lightning rends the night. So we think of that lightning momentarily. And in its glare shows all the dark black clouds had hid. So the dark clouds have hidden light from us. Likewise, rarely through the Buddha's power, virtuous thoughts rise, brief and transient in the world. And so basically, we all have basic goodness within us, and that's our Buddha nature. And through that, as well as through the power of those who have achieved enlightenment, virtuous thoughts arise, brief and transient in the world. So even though this world might look like a world of darkness, we still have Buddha nature in the midst of it. And therefore, virtuous thoughts will always be present. Virtuous thoughts will never disappear because we have Buddha nature. It's impossible for those virtuous thoughts to disappear. But what are we going to do with how frail they are? And he addresses this in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 6. Thus behold the utter frailty of goodness. Except for perfect bodhicitta, there is nothing able to withstand the great and overwhelming strength of evil. So. What I like about this is that he paints in verse five, he paints a, a dark picture of, of a world filled with negativity and that virtuous thoughts are kind of weak and they only last for a moment and then are covered over by our bad habits. But then he said, except for perfect bodhicitta, there is nothing able to withstand the great and overwhelming strength of evil. So what he is saying is what stands between us and the abyss of the evil of the world, what stands between us and the evil in the world is perfect bodhicitta. And so, um, and so this is what we're going to be talking about this week and next and possibly even into the next week is uh, what is bodhicitta and how do we train in it and how do we make it ours? How do we think about it? Except for perfect bodhicitta, there is nothing able to withstand the great and overwhelming strength of evil. What I take from this is an incredible uh, array of hope. 
that because we have Buddha nature and because we have the potential to have positive thoughts, because we have the uh, potential to train our minds in love and compassion, because we have this potential, that evil will never consume the world. It can't because we have Buddha nature and it's our basic nature. So it will never, evil will never consume the world. But what we need to do is train because if we train in this precious bodhicitta, then we can bring uh, light to our corner of the world and hopefully bring light to the corner of the world of others as well. So this is uh, all I have time for today. Um, and uh, what we'll do next week is we'll pick up here and talk about the two types of bodhicitta, aspiration bodhicitta, the, the bodhicitta that is training in the aspiration to uh, develop love and compassion for ourselves and others. And then the following week, if we don't get it done next week, the following week, we'll talk about action bodhicitta, the, the bodhicitta of taking action on the wish to benefit others to actually transform ourselves with love. So um, let's take a moment now to sit quietly and meditate for just a moment, imagining uh, as we um, as we sit and follow our breath in and out that we allow our mind to quiet itself. And then imagine that we are in front of ourselves and imagine extending love to ourselves. Letting it wash over us and bathe us and uplift us. Wishing us to have happiness, safety and goodness. And then imagine that for all of those we love. Imagining it for all of those we are unaware of. And finally, wishing that love for all beings in the world, including those with whom we have trouble. gathering together all the goodness of our session today. Um, we dedicate the goodness of our session today to all suffering beings, making the aspiration that they are free from suffering, come to happiness, and then to Buddhahood. And coming to Buddhahood, may they emanate in all directions and benefit beings endlessly. We dedicate the goodness with this thought in mind. Through this merit, may all beings gain the omniscience of Buddhahood. May it defeat our common enemy, wrongdoing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may we free all beings, may we free all beings, may we free all beings. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'll see you next week, one o'clock Eastern time on Sunday. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. 
To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.